Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Salish, for the opportunity and for the invitation and for the wonderful introduction. It is interesting that as much as your wife comes from the same hometown as I do, my wife comes from the same hometown as you do. So there is, uh, there is you know, this, this interesting connection, I guess, right? Everything happens for a reason. Apologies in advance for all of you in Atlanta who don't have enough South African friends already and have to hear another one of these accents. So I hope that you'll be able to, to bear with me and understand what I'm saying. It's a, a special week and a powerful week. In a few hours, it will be Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new month, the month of Tammuz. And for us as Chabadniks, the big thing about the month of Tammuz, obviously, is Gimel Tammuz, which is why you're having this learning program. I think it's amazing that you've done it. About two years ago, somebody forwarded a tweet that came out of New York, and the person who tweeted it was not Jewish. And this is what she said. It tickled me then, and it's still, I still find it funny today. She said, I cannot believe that it is already excuse me, are you Jewish season. In other words, what she was referring to is that when it comes to the high holidays, and then shortly after that, the holiday of Sukkot, the Chabadniks are out in force on the streets of pretty much everywhere, but especially so in Manhattan, with the Lulav and Etrog in hand, stopping every single passerby, and with that question, excuse me, are you Jewish? I thought it was really funny. And, and she said it in a respectful way. It wasn't disparaging at all. Um, but it was, it was humorous because who identifies the time of the year by that phrase, excuse me, are you Jewish? And it really got me thinking at the time, and it's something I've thought about a lot. You know, there are many things that Chabad is renowned for. Uh, hopefully, good food. I think that that's something people associate with Chabad. You can go anywhere in the world, you'll, you'll get a free meal. Uh, maybe that's one of our weaknesses, is that we're known for that. And one of the things that we're known for, of course, is that they'll hit you up for a mitzvah on the move, anywhere, anytime, often in the most compromising situation. For example, if you talk about the Lulav and Etrog, I remember, and I was barely by mitzvah myself, um, but I remember once standing outside a shopping mall here in Johannesburg, and I, I wasn't so good at it yet. You know, I was still young. And when you're young and you don't learn certain techniques, so I still did that, excuse me, are you Jewish routine, even to people who were very obviously Jewish. So this guy was walking into the mall with his little son next to him, and he saw us, and there was that immediate horror in his eyes, which should have given it away that he was Jewish. But anyway, he started walking towards us, and I cut him off in the middle of the path on, on his way into the mall. And I said to him those words, excuse me, are you Jewish? And of course, he was flustered on the one hand, but on the other hand, he anticipated what I was going to do next, which was to ask him to shake the lulab. So he jumped to the next question and responded to that one already in advance. And he said, no, as in, no, I don't want to shake the lulab. But his son, who was probably five years old, was was absolutely shocked. He, he didn't see the step ahead. He saw somebody ask his father, are you Jewish? The father said no. He started tugging on his father's hand. He said, yes, we are, daddy. Yes, we are. And of course, uh, there was very little that he could do to escape me after that. And he, he had to land up shaking the lulav as much as he was shaking in his boots. So I think the point of that story will speak to the heart of what I'd like to share with you today. Because it's quaint or annoying to be stopped or to be reminded of your Jewish connection. 
randomly in the middle of Fifth Avenue or as you're about to board an airplane, on the one hand. On the other hand, I think we completely miss just how profound a concept it is. This notion of that kind of outreach, that mitzvah outreach, it's incredibly profound. And that's what I'd like to explore with you today and on three levels. What the Rebbe innovated for the person who asks the question, for the person who is asked, and for the nature or the appreciation of the mitzvah that is to be done. So those are the three areas. That's why I say that the, the Rebbe kind of reinvented or, or reawakened the essence of Judaism. And that simple act. Now, very often people get excited. You know, what was the end of the story? That's often what happens. You, know, you hear these stories. There was somebody in the middle of nowhere and they caught up with somebody. And then afterwards, they turned their life around. And we, we love those stories that have a big fancy ending to the story. And if you have one of those stories, you can become a, a big international speaker or you could publish a book or put a clip on YouTube and have who knows how many views. The reality is that 99% of those stories do not have a big fancy explosive ending. So that's not the point. We are distracted by looking for the big headline story at the end. The essence of the interaction is not about what it will become. It's not the means to an end. There's something phenomenal that happens in that brief encounter, something that is truly magical. I'll tell you a story that maybe illustrates that point. For my sins, or perhaps just because I'm an idealist and, and my wife always tells me that uh, I need a little bit more anchor in my life because I'll, I'll fly off very easily into the blue, bright blue yonder. So for whatever reason, uh, in 2008, I accepted an invitation from a group of people, young people, fit people, people who go to gym on a regular basis from the United Kingdom, and they invited me to join them to climb a mountain in Tanzania in Africa. Now, I don't know, you can't really see much about me because you're just seeing shoulders and up. So let me explain to you, I am not the strapping, energetic, uh, you know, I, I mean, I have a lot of energy, thank God. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person who's pumping iron. It's not me. I was the kid at school when they used to do running around the field for exercise. We used to roll down the hill and then pretend I had done the laps and then come back at the end. You know, that's, that's who I am. Anyhow, for whatever reason, I agreed to join this particular group and we went and we climbed this mountain. They trained rigorously because they were a group of people. So they kind of egged each other on. My training was to research everything that Hasidic philosophy says about mountains. I figured if you could work it out spiritually, you could do it physically. And by the way, it actually worked, but that's not the point of the story. So we, we summited this mountain. It's called Mount Meru. It's the, the baby brother of Kilimanjaro. So it's just slightly uh, shorter than the Kilimanjaro hike, which is why we chose it to be back home for Shabbos. And the, the most incredible thing happened to us. This particular mountain, they only allow 12 people per day onto the mountain. So it's pristine, it's quiet, it's clean. And on our summit day, we had the most incredible blessing from Hashem. On the way up the mountain, absolutely clear skies. You could see, I mean, you're above the cloud line in any event, but the, the stars were magnificent. On the way down the mountain, as we got low enough for there to be cloud and for it to be hot enough to really feel the pain, this magnificent cloud came in and it was cool, refreshing, beautiful. What we did not know 
was that as we were coming down the mountain, coming up the mountain was a group from Los Angeles. And in that group was a fellow, I have no idea what his name is, but we'll call him Josh because that sounds pretty Jewish, right? So here was this young guy from LA making his way up a mountain in the middle of Africa. And of course, if you're climbing a mountain far from home, you're probably trying to find yourself. So as he came up to base camp, so out of the rolling mist emerged 12 religious Jews. He was gobsmacked. I mean, you, 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 I wish we had it on camera. You should have not just to see his face, but to see the apparition of us like, kind of materializing out of, the out of the cloud. And as exhausted as he was from the hike up to base camp, when he saw us and we noticed immediately that he was Jewish and said, excuse me, are you Jewish? He couldn't help himself. By the way, there's nowhere to run. I mean, it's us and him in a mountainside. So he had no choice but to put on spilling. And I always wonder, what's the end of that story? What happened? I mean, this is such an incredible, unique experience on a mountain in Africa. These Jews materialize out of the clouds and say, put on spinning. Surely something must have happened. Surely he turned his life around and enrolled in a yeshiva. And today is a student rabbi somewhere. Surely. Don't know. And I guess we'll never know. We'll never know unless he decides to write that book or, or put that post on YouTube, right? So those interactions, while of course in the idealistic mind of young people, and many times it's young people who are out there with their tefillin in hand or the Shabbat candles or the lulav, they in their mind imagine the fantasies of what's happened to whoever they engaged with. The truth is most times nothing happens. They put on the tefillin and say, who? That's it beginning and end of the interaction. So what's the point? What's the point? I was privileged to study in Yeshiva for a couple of years in Kfar Chabad in Israel. Now, I don't know how many people have visited Kfar Chabad. I'm sure that many of you have visited Israel and you'll go to the classic famous sites. You'll go to Tel Aviv. You'll go to Jerusalem. Maybe you'll go to Tzfat if you're more spiritual. Not many people get to go to Kfar Chabad. It's not high up on the to-do list of visiting Israel. And Kfar Chabad, basically, if you want to know where it is, when you land in Ben-Gurion Airport and the plane reaches the end of the runway before it turns around to taxi back to the terminal, if you would jump out of the plane at that point, run across a few etrog orchards, you would land up in Kfar Chabad, this little quaint throwback to the 18th century where people ride bicycles, sit, sit and beards flying in the wind. So that's where we studied. But every Friday, we'd board a bus and we'd go to Tel Aviv and we'd, we'd catch Jews. Because, by the way, Tel Aviv, what a gold mine for Chabadniks. And you don't even have to ask that question, excuse me, are you Jewish? You don't even have to be nice. These are Israelis. You can just cut straight to the chase. You know, it was always this, this kind of punch up between us and them. And they'd shout back at you and say, when you go to the army, I'll put on tefillin. And we'd say, I don't have to go to the army. I'm from South Africa and I'm exempt from military, whatever it was. It was always really alive and, you know, very strong and interactive. Anyhow, at that point in time, just before we left, they opened what was then the brand new Tachana Merkazit, the brand new uh, multi-story bus station of Tel Aviv, the central bus station. So that became the place. If you were a Chabadnik with ambition, you wanted to have your table with your tefillin every Friday in that bus station. I missed that opportunity because they opened just as we were getting ready to leave. 
So I, I didn't have that opportunity, but a few weeks after um, we had moved on to, to study further, I was in touch with one of my friends and they told this amazing story. And I think that this story is our first real insight into what the whole excuse me, are you Jewish thing is all about. So they had uh, their table every Friday. They would get a stream of Israelis lining up, putting on to fill in Sephardic Jews, particularly who loved the opportunity to do a mitzvah. And it, it was busy. It was really busy. One Friday they arrived and guess what? About a hundred feet down the hallway, they see another group from another religious organization who had also put up a table with tefillin to stop passers-by to put on tefillin. And as they say, what do they say? You know, when, when people try to emulate what you're doing, you know that you're onto something right. So anyhow, they said, great, the more the merrier. You get your mitzvahs, we get our mitzvahs. It's all fantastic. Anyhow, they're doing their thing and they're putting on tefillin. And the next thing they noticed, an incredibly strange scene unfold. A guy walks past the other table. They're too far to hear the conversation, but they could see the interaction. They see that these fellows approach him, clearly offer him the opportunity to put on tefillin, and he refuses. He refuses quite sternly. No sooner does he refuse to put on tefillin, he walks directly to the Chabad table and says, wrap me up, guys. So they, they found that to be quite strange. Anyhow, they put Tvil in with him. And then they asked him, please explain what's just happened. Because we saw that somebody else offered you the chance to put on Tvil in and you said no. So why no to them and why volunteer to us? What he's told them was incredibly profound. He said, they want me to put on Tvil in so that they will have a chance to go to Gun Aden paradise you want me to put on to fill in so that i will have the chance to go to gun aden to paradise it's a really intriguing story because he obviously picked up you know some people i suppose are more sensitive than others he picked up somehow that the one group was just kind of interested in logging how many jews could they collate could they um connect with could they get to perform the mitzvah Whereas he felt the sense from the Chabadnik that they were genuinely interested in his well-being. There's a, a term, an expression that people use, and it's a little bit nasty, but the expression that people use is a, I don't know if you've ever heard it, an outreach professional. Ever heard this expression? Outreach professional means that some people are lawyers, some people are estate agents, some people professionally go out there to bring Jews who are lost. Isn't that an offensive term? Jews who are far. Isn't that an offensive term? Don't worry. We're here. The rescue team has arrived. We're the people who have qualifications and we will pull you out of the swamp that you have sunk into and bring you back to a place of greatness. Oh, and by the way, while we're doing it, we'll also get a couple of loyalty points with God for having saved one of his lost sheep. That is not what the Rebbe intended with his mitzvah outreach campaigns. It's not about bringing people back. It's not about reeling them in. It's not about a numbers game. How many people have you managed to attract? 
And so that's what I'd like to explore. It's about a totally revolutionary perspective on the practitioner, meaning the guy carrying the tefillin, the person who will be invited to do the mitzvah, and the mitzvah itself. We need to move away. That's what the Rebbe said. We need to move away from an attitude of there's some kind of a leaderboard in Judaism, or there is some kind of an expectation that you're a half a Jew until you do a whole lot of things, or you're a lesser Jew if you're less observant. We need to move away from that dramatically because that is not genuine Judaism. We need to move away from the fact that you have to accumulate X amount of mitzvahs before you are considered in God's eyes because that is not genuine Judaism. And we need to move away from the impression that people have that you have to have some kind of um, qualification before you can touch and influence and add value to somebody's life because that is not genuine Judaism. So one of my favorite stories of one of the personalities who we were privileged to interact with when we studied in Yeshiva in Kfar Chabad in Israel was a fellow called Reb Mendel Futterfass. So anybody from the Chabad world knows Reb Mendel Futterfass is one of the heroes of Judaism, of modern Judaism. And I don't say that lightly. He really was a hero. Here's a man who lost his father before he was born. Here's a man who lived in abject poverty for his whole childhood. Yet, he dedicated his life to ensure that under the nose of Stalin's Russia, Judaism continued to exist. He was responsible for a whole network of underground schools. And then, the one thing that really got him into trouble was after the Second World War, where there was this moratorium and anybody with a Polish passport was given a, a free exit out of Russia, and that was important for Jews who wanted to escape the communists, he produced false passports to help Jews who are on the wanted list, the hit list of the Soviet forces to get them out of Russia. And eventually he was arrested for that. Remendel Futterfass was a man who had absolute sacrifice for his Judaism, who had his fair share of suffering, including the loss of a child very shortly after he came out of the communist regime. And nevertheless, if you would have met him as we did, he was a man who always had a twinkle in his eye. He was a man who completely exuded happiness at every moment. He was a person, when you looked at him, you felt that's what a chassid, what a Chabad follower adherent is supposed to look like. So there's a very well-known story that they tell about Remendel Futafas. The story is that he was on a plane, traveling together with a whole lot of idealistic young yeshiva students. And sure enough, you know what the worst thing that can ever happen to you on a flight is. When they close the doors, for me personally, when they close the doors on the flight, that's the best time. No, nobody can disturb you. You can actually relax. But if you're on a flight and there is a Chabadnik on that flight, when they close the doors, you are now trapped. There's nowhere to go and they will find you. So this is what happened. These people were flying on wherever the destination was that they were headed towards, They're flying on the plane. And these young students went from person to person, excuse me, are you Jewish? Excuse me, are you Jewish? And there was one fellow sitting over there rather bulky kind of a guy with a chip on his shoulder. And he definitely looked that, like he was uh, heavily jet lagged or had missed his previous flight or something was, he wasn't a happy man. And when they went over to ask him if he was Jewish, he acknowledged that he was Jewish, but he outrightly refused to put on tefillin, no matter what they tried. So they came back to their seats and Remendel Futafar said, no. So how was it? How successful were you? He was an older man at this point. They said, no, it was great except for that guy. That guy, he was a tough nut. We just couldn't crack him. So Mendel 
took, picked himself out of his seat, hobbled over to that guy, and in his inimitable way, like this, had the man rolling up his sleeve and putting on tefillin. So when he came back to his seat, these guys went back and said, hey, 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 how did he do that? He barely even spoke to you. We tried all our philosophy and our deep in insight into the spirituality of tefillin and how it will realign your chi or whatever they told him. And, and he just came over and, and like that, he got you to put on tefillin. What did he do? Now, one thing they knew for sure, this was an American and Reb Mendel barely spoke English. It could not have been an eloquent conversation. So you know what he had said? He went over to the man and he said in his broken English with his heavy Russian accent, I Jew, you Jew. I tefillin, you tefillin. And that had sealed the deal. Because that's what those interactions are about. The first thing that interaction does is it levels the playing field. It's not, I am the big deal scholar who knows half the Talmud by heart, and you're just a novice who doesn't know how to pronounce Chabad without tripping over your own tongue. No, this is, this is I Jew, you're Jew. This is a moment of connection. This is a moment where we peel away the external layers that have separated us through the course of history, and we're honest with each other. And that honesty is to say, you don't become Jewish on your bar or bat mitzvah. You don't become Jewish when you, when you graduate your, for, your first JLI course. You don't become Jewish when you can say the Shema in Hebrew. You're Jewish because you're Jewish because at the core of your being, you and I are equally Jewish. So the first thing that the Rebbe recaptured in that magical moment of absolute strangers meeting on a street and the one convincing the other to do a mitzvah is a recognition of the value of every single Jew. I'm not making you do that mitzvah because I'll get points or because you need the upgrade. I want you to do that mitzvah because you have a soul and as valuable as that mitzvah is to me and I appreciate its value because look, I do it every single day. I believe that you will resonate with that value at the core of your being exactly as I do. And that's regardless of whether you do it ever again or not. That's regardless of whether that becomes the turning point in your life or not. Because this is a moment of truth. And a moment of truth is never a moment. A moment of truth is a shift. It's a paradigm shift. That perhaps from that moment and on, you will at least know that to be Jewish is an essential state. It's not a point that you have to achieve. So I think that's the first thing that the Rebbe revolutionized about this experience, how to look at each other. In the words of his predecessor, the, the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, he said, as long as we see each other as bodies occupied by souls, we will always have conflict. As soon as we recognize each other as souls temporarily housed in bodies, we will always feel connected. That moment of interaction is a statement, I see your soul. <laughs> You know, we, when we were standing there one day in Tel Aviv, my particular haunt was uh, we would put up a table 
next to what is called the Agam Fountain in Dizengoff Square. I don't know if you know that part of Tel Aviv. Uh, basically, Agam, Yaakov Agam was an artist who made this magnificent, beautiful, colorful fountain. And Dizengoff Square is where they, uh, where they built that, where he built it and where it's placed. Now, that part of Tel Aviv, dare I say, is far from a religious area. Okay, the kind of people who came past over there were far from religious. In fact, some of them were quite aggressively anti-religious. But it was interesting every single time to see that connection because that connection was a level playing field. It was no longer you have the black hat and I have the tattoos. It was no longer you have the beard and I have the ponytail. It was just absolute connection. And some of those interactions were really, really beautiful. Uh, before we, we came on, I asked Rabbi Solish if, if there are any South Africans on the group. And the only reason I asked that is because there's a shopping mall here in South Africa called the Belfour Park Shopping Mall. So perhaps if there's anybody here from South Africa originally, you'd remember it. And there was a toy store in that shopping mall. When I was 14 years old and knew at this business of going out and invo involving other Jews in mitzvahs, I went to that toy store. And I went to the owner of the toy store, who ironically uh, wasn't all that friendly to the kids. He had a nice friendly face at the front desk. He ran the store from the back office. Uh, but it, well, this, in spite of his outward appearance, he was actually a really, really sweet man. And I'll never forget the first time I went and I said to him, would you like to put on tefillin? And he said, no, quite gruffly. And the woman who was also Jewish, the woman who, who, who worked the, the front office, said to me, you will never get him to put on tefillin. Never which of course is what you don't say to a Chabadnik because that basically is an invitation or a challenge. Obviously, obviously. So within a year, he became a regular customer and he used to put on to fit in every single day. And you know what, I, what did it for him? What did it for him was that he eventually realized I had no other agenda. I wasn't looking to recruit him, to make him a member of any kind of a community. I didn't try and push anything down his, face, his throat. It was just simply, you are Jewish, I Jew, you Jew. And that's how we were trained as Chabadniks, that you look at the person and you see the person as a valuable person, at least as valuable as you are probably more valuable, if you want to be honest. But uh, so that's lesson number one, revolution number one, is how to see our fellow Jew. Revolution number two is how to see ourselves. I was 14 years old. You know, in retrospect, 14 years old, you walk into people's homes, offices, I mean, I went to a retail mall. That's not so bad. They're designed to interact with people and they couldn't exactly kick me out. Some of my friends went to high-powered lawyers. I would just picture the scene for one second. Here's this little kid. He's just had his bar mitzvah. He's wearing a hat because you know how it is. Chabadniks get a black hat as soon as they turn 13, but it's got to last them at least until their wedding. So it's a size or two too big. So the hat's down to his ears. He's wearing his, his suit, which is probably also a little bit oversized. Because, uh, I mean, let's be honest, the guy's four foot, who knows what, at that age. And, and no teenager ever fits into a suit anyway. And here he comes marching in, think about it, into Cohen, Cohen, and Cohen lawyers, walks up to the secretary and says, I'd like to see Mr. Cohen. And she says, do you have an appointment? And he looks at her like she's fallen off the moon. What do you mean an appointment? I am here to put on to fit in. Like, why would I need to stand on ceremony? This could be the most important thing that happens to him all year. It's, it's audacious. It's pretentious. It's, I mean, think about it. These kids, we take it for granted in Chabad. I mean, it's like, it's not even a question. The day after your bar mitzvah, you're out there and telling the rest of the world what to do. 
But if you think about it, it's incredible. These precocious little children stopping people in the middle of everywhere and telling them how to live their lives. When I think about it in retrospect, thank God, some of those people who were on my beat every single Friday have remained fast friends until today. And if not them, their children. In fact, when we opened our Chabad house, some of the founding members were either from that particular mall or their children because we had built those relationships. But when I think back to it, I mean, at 14 years old, I went to people who were old enough to be my grandfather and started to dictate to them, listen, you need more mezuzahs on your house. You know, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I mean, I remember doing this, walking into, there was a pharmacy and uh, the pharmacist was a little bit skeptical. He was a traditional Jew, but he was quite skeptical about certain things. And I'll never forget walking in over there. The man had just had a cardiac incident. He had been in hospital. He was back in the office. I, like, I march into his office and I say to him, listen, you've got to check your mezuzahs. You know, none of the business of, wow, I'm so sorry to hear what happened. I was a child. I didn't really appreciate the niceties of, of how you deal with people. It was, you've got to have your mezuzahs checked. And that was that. I'm, I arranged to get to his house, took down all these mezuzahs. It's a bizarre story, by the way. He had a heart issue. And the one mezuzah, I'll never forget, as I unrolled it, just to take a peek, the words said, you should tie them as a sign. It's supposed to say you should tie them as a sign on your arm. And his mezuzah said, the, the guy writing, the scribe, had obviously skipped or lost attention, been distracted. And instead he wrote, you shall tie it as a sign on your heart. So it was a pretty shocking story. And there I am telling him, lecturing him, you need kosher mezuzahs because that will protect you. Who on earth did I think I was? That's the second revolution. The second revolution of the Rebbe is not just how you see the next person, to see the value, to see the soul, to recognize that at their core, they are just as connected to Judaism as they need to be, but to see yourself, to see yourself as a person who can really impact others. There's way too much of us running around feeling self-doubt. There's way, it's way too common, particularly, I think, in the Jewish world, where there's a fair share of neurosis that runs through our genes. So there's way too much of us second-guessing ourselves. Can I bring value to somebody else's life? Who am I to tell them what to do if I think that I could somehow give them, not, not advice, because we're not supposed to go around dispensing advice to people, but something of value, a teaching, a thought, an inspiration. Way too often we think, not I, I'll give them the number for the rabbi. There's a professional out there who can do the work. Me, I'm just a novice. And by the way, I might be a novice for my whole life. In the Rebbe's words, if you know Aleph, just the first letter of the Jewish alphabet, then you have the holy duty to teach Aleph. If that's all you've got, that is plenty because you never know who you could touch with that. Some years ago, a member of our community came over to me with a big smirk on his face. This is somebody who does not keep a kosher home and is not Shabbat observant. He's quite a maverick character. And he came with a smirk on his face and he tells me, Rabbi, I've got to tell you a story that happened. Okay, I'm waiting. What's he going to tell me? He says, I don't know if you know, but I've started recently that every time a person meets with me for a business meeting, if they are Jewish, before the meeting, they have to first don to fill in. I'm like, what? <laughs> this fellow is not from, I hate that word, but I'm just using it for effect. So he's not religious. 
And there he is. I never knew this. He says, and I even have a pair. I have my own pair of tefillin that I keep at home to wear in the morning. And I have another pair that I keep in the office so that I guarantee that every occasion it will be there. So what's the big smirk about? He says, Rabbi, you won't believe what happened to me yesterday. Someone arrived for a meeting. And I said to them, rules in this office are that before the meeting, you have to put on tefillin. And he looked at me and said, yes, but I am left-handed. And he thought he had snookered me because left-handed means he can't wear my right-handed tefillin. And it was at that moment, I'd been waiting for that moment. He says, I turned around and I pulled out my left-handed pair and I put on tefillin with him. And I was blown away. Like, I don't have a left-handed pair for lefties. I have my right-handed pair of tefillin that I turn upside down if I've got to put it on a left-handed person. So there you have it. That's how the Rebbe wants us to see ourselves. You don't have to wear a kippah the whole day. You don't have to know how to read Hebrew. You don't have to necessarily keep all of the laws or even half of the laws. And that does not preclude you from having the opportunity to add spiritual value, Jewish value to the next person. Not only can you, you should. When my dad started to become religious, I was small, so I barely remember this. But when he started to become religious, one of the first things that he did was to start to observe Shabbat. And the company he worked for, they were, they were not happy with this. He was at the time the financial director. And Dafka, as soon as he started to keep Shabbat, so they scheduled all of the managerial meetings for a Saturday. In any event, he had to leave. He had to leave. He couldn't obviously work under those circumstances. Before he left, there was one other Jewish man working in the company. And he said to this Jewish man, you have to put on tefillin every day. That's the one thing you have to do. And that was that. He didn't see the fellow for at least 15 years. And then they met up again. Hey, I haven't seen you for a while. What's happening? This and that. Where are you working now? Where are you working? What are you doing? And the fellow turns to my father. He says, I just want you to know that ever since you told me to put on tefillin every single day, this is when my father was just newly getting involved. He had recently bought his own pair of tefillin. The fellow says to him, you told me to put on tefillin every day. I want you to know that I've put on tefillin every single day for the last 15 years. Oh, by the way, every single day, Shabbat, the festivals, every single day. He didn't even know that there were days you don't wear tefillin. Doesn't matter. I can assure you now that the degree of nachas, of pleasure that Hashem had from that man putting on his tefillin every single day supersedes a lot of really religious people who sway back and, front and forth in front of the Western Wall or in the middle of Borough Park. So lesson one that the Rebbe taught us is see everybody as absolutely connected. You're not going to add to them. You're only going to hopefully help them resonate with who they are. Number two, never underestimate the value of yourself because the impact and influence that you could have is immense. And number three, the Rebbe revolutionized for us what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is not something you do as part of a course that will eventually bring you to graduate into the next world. A mitzvah is not an, a tradition that keeps us connected to a history once upon a time. A mitzvah is not a heavy burden on our shoulders that unfortunately we were born into this particular group of people. So we've got to feel guilty for not doing because by the way, if there's one thing Jews are good at, it's feeling guilty. 
So even if we're not doing the mitzvahs, at least we feel good about the fact that we, we feel bad about it. So what is a mitzvah? What is a mitzvah? Think about this. Here you are walking down the street and some little kid with an oversized hat or some girl who's barely broken out with acne says to you, please, would you light Shabbat candles tonight? And you feel bad. You know, this is the Chabad equivalent of the Girl Scouts. So you feel bad and you take those candles. And unlike the Girl Scouts, you don't even have to buy them. You take the candles home and you light Shabbat candles that night. What have you done? People will wax lyrical about how you've become part of the unbroken chain across the generations that links you to Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah. You know, all the early people. Yeah, wonderful. It's all true. It's 100% true. But you know what you've done? What you've done is you've allowed yourself the opportunity to experience an eternal interaction. God is eternal. And the soul is eternal. Most of what we experience in life is transient. There's an expression that the sages use, he'avar ayin, the past is gone. The he'asid adayin, and the future is not here yet. And the present is like the blink of an eye. Most of what we experience is completely transient. That's why, by the way, we're always living vicariously through cameras. Let's capture, capture how much can we hold on to? You know, once upon a time, you used to go to a wedding and people were at the wedding. Now you go to a wedding and people are busy saving the wedding to their social media profiles so that later they can come back to the wedding to experience what they didn't experience in person. We're so desperate to cling to every bit of life because we know that it will not be here in the next moment. There's nothing that we have that is of lasting value. It could be the most valuable, precious thing that you own at any time. It could break or be taken away. There's only one opportunity for eternity. It's called a mitzvah. Because a mitzvah firstly puts you in touch with your soul and your soul is eternal. A mitzvah is the language of your soul. The mitzvah may be performed with the body. You take your hand, you hold the coin and you put it into the charity box. So it's performed with your body. But the mitzvah is an experience of your soul. It's an experience. The word mitzvah comes from the word connection. So it's a mitzvah that connects you with God. And God is eternal. So if your eternal soul is switched on or revealed, and it creates a connection with the eternal God, that means that this moment, even though it is a fleeting moment in human time, it is a moment of eternal or absolute value. We constantly make the mistake of thinking you have to correlate a whole lot of mitzvahs before you get something that is worthwhile. That is the revolution the Rebbe taught us. It's not a race. There's no hierarchy. You will not be awarded a gold trophy at the end for having been the person who out of your group, you did the most mitzvahs. That's not how it works. Every single mitzvah in the moment, whether at the end of the story there is a beautiful fairy tale ending or not, the mitzvah is of absolute eternal value to you, to God, and to the world. 
That's how the Rebbe reclaimed the essence of Judaism through that simple interaction, the excuse me, are you Jewish interaction. He reclaimed for us just how precious and valuable every one of us is as we are. We're not in need of some kind of DIY improvement before he likes us. He reclaimed for us the value of the individual that Judaism, yes, we do plenty collectively. We gather together, we're a communal nation. But at the same time, every single one of us has absolute value and absolute power. And he reclaimed the value and the truth of a mitzvah. That a mitzvah is not a means to an end. A mitzvah is not part of a puzzle. A mitzvah is not one of the things that you do to eventually catch up to your rabbi. A mitzvah is of absolute eternal value in that moment. What will happen next or what happened before is actually irrelevant. Because every, every mitzvah gives you the most incredible experience of connection. So I think in light of this and in honor of Gimel Tammuz, what we should all think about is these three things. Think about one person in our lives who might be a little less involved in their Judaism than we are. And maybe we sometimes look a little askance at them. So the lesson there is, look at them and see in them the value you see in yourself or that you'd like to see in yourself. Number two, look at yourself and don't second guess and say, I really can actually make a meaningful difference to another person. I really can. And number three, it doesn't take much to do that. One simple mitzvah interaction is worth everything. Even if it doesn't turn their life around and give you a fairy tale ending. And please God, we each do our part. And in response, God does his. And the ultimate wish of the Jewish people, obviously, is that Hashem should send us Moshiach and take this world to a place where the things we're talking about now as theory we'll be able to see as real. Please God, that should happen. Not, as they say, speedily in our days, but actually today. It's been really uh, wonderful to have this opportunity. Thank you. I want to wish you all a lot of success and blessing in everything that you do.